We'll hear argument next in case 07869, Isura v. Pocatello Education Association. Mr. Smith. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. Uh, this case is narrowed to a single, uh, but from the petitioner's perspective, uh, a critical dispute over the scope of uh, internal state sovereignty, whether the First Amendment trumps the otherwise existing authority of the Idaho legislature to direct political subdivisions of the state to take an action uh, here restricting access to their payroll systems that the subdivisions could take independently without violating the amendment. The genesis of this dispute is Idaho Code Section 44-2004-2, which was adopted in 2003. That provision prohibits state and local government public employers from deducting amounts for political activities uh, from the uh, payroll checks uh, due their employees and remitting those amounts to third parties. But didn't the statute also prohibit private employers from doing that? Uh, as construed by the uh, district uh, court, it did. The um, base legislation known as the Voluntary Contribution Act uh, excluded from application employee, uh, employers subject to the two major labor, federal labor relations statutes, the NLRA and the RLA. But there was um, obviously a group of, of employers, uh, private employers, uh, in, uh, who were not engaged in commerce as well as uh, the agricultural sector. And, the, and the, you concede the statute was unconstitutional as applied to them? The district court concluded that the uh, — yes, Your Honor, we did. You, and you, you agree with that conclusion? We do. And what is the difference between the private employer and the county agency? Well, the principal difference is that one is a private employer, that is to say, engaging in private speech, uh, while the public employer is a, sub- is a subdivision of the state of Idaho, subject, uh, we would argue, to the plenary control uh, uh, pursuant to the Idaho Constitution of the well, Idaho I, I legislature. Think Justice Stevens' question highlights for me one of the confusing parts of this case. You've sort of paired off. Uh, a number of the people who would otherwise be covered, and you're left with the county employees. If you had started with the county employees, is this how you would have gone about telling them they can't do this? I mean, the county employers? Would you have passed a law saying that the county uh, employers are not allowed to have this checkoff? If you think they're part of the state, I guess you could have just written them a letter and say don't do this, right? Your Honor, in order, the answer is no, I don't believe um, um, we, referring to the petitioners in this case, could have written uh, the, uh, the uh, political subdivisions of a state to direct them to take an action unless there was a legislative basis for doing so. In this instance, uh, the legislature concluded that it wanted all public employers, among others, uh, to uh, not allow access to their payroll systems. For that. I understand that the counties, if they elected to, could decide not to, not to do the checkoff. 
Prior to the adoption of uh, the statute in 2003, yes. And so why should counties be different from, from — I'm still puzzled about why counties, county employers are different from private employers in terms of the state interest in preventing the checkoff. Well, there's a fundamental difference, Your Honor, and, and it rests in the notion that uh, the state has uh, no interest uh, in the uh, — in private employers' determination to be involved or not involved in political matters. Uh, the state legislature, however, has a, a very concrete interest in avoiding either the reality or the appearance. If, if, what is if, that interest? If you, if you think of the case uh, as a principal agent case, uh, so that the principal can direct the agent what to do, the agent being the county, um, then it seems to me that the unions might still have an argument that this is an unconstitutional condition. I've been looking for ways to examine this case. The public forum doesn't really work uh, for me. Subsidy doesn't really work for me. It seems to me to be an unconstitutional condition case. At least that's the argument. That doesn't mean uh, you necessarily uh, can't prevail. But uh, suppose the state told the city uh, you can't have a, a parade that you sponsor for this particular cause. That would raise an unconstitutional conditions argument, wouldn't it? It might, Your Honor, but that situation, of course, is not the situation presented here. Why isn't it? And I, and I, and I say that because I, I think that follows on Justice Stevens' line of question. I didn't mean to interrupt him, but it seems to me that's consistent with what he's asking. Because the statute at issue here, uh, Justice Kennedy, uh, speaks uh, across the board to a specific kind of conduct, political activities. It does so in a viewpoint-neutral fashion to prohibit um, a particular parade might well raise viewpoint um, uh, non-neutrality issues. Well, is, is the, the union state going to stand do up and say that this is viewpoint, that this is, that this is viewpoint-based? Isn't that we're going to wait here for the union? Aren't they right about that? Your Honor, they're, they're incorrect about that. The uh, district court concluded that the uh, statute uh, is viewpoint-neutral. Indeed, uh, But does it get at any speech other than union speech. I mean, you say, yes, it is content-based, but it's viewpoint-neutral. But it seems that what is banned by the statute is union speech. Does is any other organization affected? Does the ban affect any other organization? Isn't it simply union speech that's at stake? The answer is no. It, uh, the, uh, the statute just n does not just affect union speech by its literal terms. But it practically, is there any other application? Well, there's no evidence in the record, Your Honor, as to any other entity um, who is affected by the statute. But that is hardly that's hardly remarkable, given the fact that uh, the uh, Plaintiffs in the litigation are uh, six labor organizations. I should add, uh, if, are, are, there, are there in, uh, in, in, in counties uh, uh, some uh, uh, charitable uh, drives? 
that, that occur annually and that permit uh, uh, employees to uh, donate to those charities uh, through deductions from their wages? There are, Your Honor. And would they presumably be covered by this? They would United, not. United Fund Drive, so far, uh, so-called. My, my uh, recollection is that, that usually the contributions to that simply come out of uh, or are deducted from the wages. And if they existed in the counties, presumably they would have been covered. But we don't know who would. Well, to the extent that the, the, the contribution was for political activities as defined in the uh, — Oh, it's only political activities. That's correct. I see. Well, none of those would, would allow that. So if, in fact, a, uh, there's a charity, which charity in Idaho is a charity makes all its contributions to help support right-to-work laws? All right. So that charity goes and says, could you uh, — we'd like a payroll deduction. Can they get it or not? Your Honor, again, it depends. I, I, uh, I don't know the answer no, no. to your okay. question. So because then, it really does We do know on, this. On what we do know purpose. what I'm wondering is, isn't this case, to me, quite confused about something fairly simple? The question would be, look, one, do you or do you not in Idaho allow anybody to have payroll deductions for anything? And I take it your answer to that question is yes, we do allow some payroll deductions for some things. Okay. So then we look at this one, and it says no payroll deductions for union activity that are political. All right? Now, you either do have or you do not have a justification for that difference. If you have a reasonable or whatever the sufficient test is, justification for the difference, you win. And if you don't, you lose. And indeed, whether you're the state or the county could have to do with the plausibility of the justification. There we are. End of case. Traditional. It's just that you didn't argue it that way, I guess, below. Now, what's wrong with that? Your Honor, in fact, we argued below that there was no constitutional right of access uh, to the payroll system uh, for purposes of making political contributions. And, and let me reiterate it this There certainly, I would think, would be a problem if the right-to-work people can get there. And, and, and you're not going to let the unions get there, but I don't know the facts. So shouldn't we just send this case back, say, please look at what the situation is. If they have treat some people one way, some people another, bad. If they don't, everybody's treated alike for good reason, probably okay. The, I would suggest that a, a remand for that purpose uh, would be futile. The district court, as I said before, concluded that the statute is viewpoint neutral. And let me stress that the term political activities uh, does not, is not defined with reference to union or uh, uh, speech by uh, other uh, uh, entities that might be controlled by unions. It addresses uh, political contributions for electoral matters, uh, independent expenditures and expenditures to political uh, parties, what, what, would they include contributions to an organization that makes contributions to political parties? Yes, to the Such as a right-to-work right to uh, organization? To the extent that the, the organization is, for example, uh, a political action committee, it would. And let me go back to, to um, Justice Ginsburg's uh, question for a moment. Had the legislature intended 44-2004-2, uh, 
to apply only to unions, um, they would have, it would have been engaging in a redundancy because under another provision of the same legislation, uh, 442603-1B Roman 4, uh, which appears at uh, uh, Petition Appendix 70, the Idaho legislature prescribed uh, amounts being amounts to, uh, required all amounts to be paid paid to a separate segregated fund, which was established pursuant to the legislation that was invalidated by the district court. Required those kinds of contributions to be made directly by the employee and not through, or not by the employee's employer. Does so the state give some particular uh, favor to unions? I mean, does it uh, allow? Uh, uh, what 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 is the situation? Uh, can you uh, be forced to contribute to the union even though you're not a union member? No, Your Honor. The uh, 44-2004-2 is part of the Idaho Right to Work Act, which was mm -hmm. adopted in the mid-1980s. Uh, it allows amounts to be deducted uh, through payroll checkoffs for union dues. But unions do have a, a special prerogative, which, uh, which no other organizations, as far as you're aware, have in the state, which is to have money deducted from people's payrolls. That's, that's correct. Mm -hmm. uh, the no other but, organization but, other than the federal, state, and local uh, governments. True. But, uh, <laughs> but let, 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 let me, let, let me uh, uh, continue with my response to, to Justice uh, um, Scalia's question. The special prerogative that, that for example, the, the Pocatello Education Association or the Firefighters Union has is the ability to uh, engage uh, in collective bargaining pursuant to state statute as the exclusive bargaining representative of, for example, the Pocatello School District's teachers. Uh, that exclusivity, which is granted to a limited number of um, in fact, two areas under Colorado, excuse me, under uh, Idaho law, uh, namely firefighters and teachers, uh, is um, the extraordinary um, uh, benefit that unions have. Yeah, the, the, the point of my question is it doesn't seem to me terribly discriminatory if indeed the only organizations in the state that are given the right whether by federal or state law, to uh, deduct private organizations, uh, given the right to deduct uh, from the uh, salary that a, uh, a municipal or a private employer pays, it doesn't seem to me um, particularly discriminatory to say that, uh, moreover, in making those deductions, no part of it will be uh, given for political activities. I mean, you're only addressing a, a narrow class, but it's a narrow class that has a special benefit. Well, I would agree that, that unions have, and particularly these, um, uh, particularly the respondents, uh, have a special benefit. But again, I go back to the basic point uh, that uh, 2004-2 addresses all 
public employers uh, or public employees uh, and is not limited to political activity contributions um, that might be, for example, as the situation is here, to a union-sponsored political action political action committee. May I ask you a question about, uh, say, a, an attempt to deduct a contribution to a charity like the United United Fund? Do counties have a choice to either do that or not do it, or does state law require them to accept such requests? Local governments have discretion. Um, they have yeah. discretion to do that. That's correct. And, and the, but, but with respect to the union situation, the statute takes away that discretion. With respect and to why is it why is there a state interest in taking away that discretion for unions, but not as the charities? Well, it takes away that discretion with respect to any third party who might receive amounts for political activities. For political activities, but but what, what is what is the reason for di- differentiating political activities from charities? The reason, as we articulate in our brief, is the desire to avoid either the appearance or the reality of, inv- of public uh, uh, employer involvement in, in this instance, electoral politics. Are there other areas in which the state exercises the authority you're asserting here with respect to uh, county employers? telling them what they can and can't do? Uh, outside the area of elections, uh, not with respect to uh, um, payroll deductions. No, I mean more generally. Your assertion is that this is part of the state, and therefore, as I gather, it's conceded on the other side, this is acceptable with respect to state employees, but not other public employers. Are there other areas in which you act like the counties are part of the state? Your Honor, the uh, the county counties in in Idaho and, and and I suppose in most states act as um, political subdivisions of the of the state, uh, and whatever authority they have or don't have uh, derives, uh, if not exclusively, virtually exclusively from state law. Right. Well, but that's true. For, no, please. I'm looking for a specific example. I mean, maybe counties or municipalities you know, the contract for trash collection or water services, and maybe the state tells them, look, you've got to deal with these people, you've got to do it by open bidding, whatever. Your Honor, let me go back to um, the election um, context for a moment to try to address that question. Uh, Prior to its amendment, uh, pursuant to the legislation at hand, Idaho Code Section 67-6605, which is part of, of Idaho's election uh, campaign finance and reporting statute, our general statute, uh, allowed payroll deductions to be made for contributions to political committees. In that sense, um, it allowed counties as well as other public employers to make deductions of the kind at issue today. Now, that authority was uh, uh, rescinded um, by virtue of uh, the amendment to 2004-2. Um, 
the point simply is that, um, if necessary, we, we could describe in detail various kinds of, of requirements that exist with respect to counties or school districts or well, cities. Well, since I asked the question, I think it's necessary. So what, what's the best example where the, the state exercises control over what the counties would otherwise have discretion to do? You mentioned school districts. Is that, is that an area? Well, Your Honor, for example, with respect to um, take open meetings, for example, take public records, for example, uh, those are general kinds of statutes that impose requirements on all levels of state government. So, for example, uh, with respect to open meetings, uh, the uh, Idaho law uh, requires essentially all meetings except for certain exclusions to be open to the public. In that sense, it's akin to the Wisconsin state. What about a Hatch Act? Does, uh, does, uh, uh, does the state uh, allow state employees to engage in uh, political activity? Your, Your Honor, it, it does, but not, not in connection with uh, their public employment activities. I don't know what that means. Well, it means that um, there is no prohibition under state law, for example, f- for a, um, uh, a public employee to engage in political activity. If the, but our statute in Idaho applies actually only to state employees. It doesn't govern those kinds of activities by local government. That's interesting. Why not? The general proposition that underlies your argument that the local entities are creatures of state law. And they cannot receive federal powers from the federal government when the states object. Is that is that an acceptable proposition? It would be an acceptable proposition to the extent that federal law doesn't preempt state law, Your Honor. Right. In this instance, we would argue that the First Amendment does not uh, interpose some kind of barrier, essentially balkanize uh, local government. Uh, from state legislative control. There, there, is, there is a case out of the Ninth Circuit, and it was affirmed by this court on a procedural point, not on the subs- not on the merits, out of the neighboring state of Washington, where s- the state says a locality cannot build a dam more than 25 feet high. The locality then gets a license from the Federal Power Commission, and the state said, well, you still don't have this authority. And the Ninth Circuit said, you do. The Federal power then supersedes. Um, would you agree that that case is right? It, depending on, on, on the facts, I, I, I would agree that it is certainly possible for, for state the, law to be There, the local entity has powers greater than what the state wants to give it, even over the state's objection. Well, the, the, Your Honor, I, that is, I think, um, um, uh, beyond cavil, that is to say, it's in federal law. I, I didn't hear you. That you think that's what? Beyond cavil. In other words, oh. uh, beyond this. Really, if the state can, can opt not to do something, it can't tell its uh, subdivisions, we don't want you to do it either, and the subdivision can then go to the, directly to the federal government and say, please let us do this, even if the state would be free to reject it on its own? Well, it, it depends. The, it the answer, that it's, that's it's the argument hard to you should be making here. 
Your Honor, it's, it perhaps is an, it, well, it's an argument that we don't have to make in this instance. Um, needless to say, uh, by virtue of the supremacy clause, there may be instances where but federal law. I thought your whole argument was that the counties are simply instrumentalities of the state, and the state has full power over them. It chooses to delegate to them uh, autonomy, but it holds the control reign. And now you're saying no, that the federal government can give the state local unit authority that the state itself chooses not to give. And you say that's beyond Cavill. I really don't understand your argument. It is beyond Cavill if the uh, federal law, in fact, supersedes state law. There may be issues with respect to I mean, the the whole case turns on, I mean, the response to Justice Kennedy, I think, would be if the federal government is simply saying you can do it if you want, that's one thing. If the federal government is saying you must do it uh, because it's covered by the Federal Power Act or whatever, that's different. If it's just a grant of permission, I would suppose the state can say, well, fine, it's okay with the feds, but you can't do it because we don't want you to. That's correct. Isn't, don't, don't you suffer from, doesn't your position suffer from a, 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 a more serious problem that doesn't even uh, implicate the preemption uh, doctrine? And that is, as I understand your argument is, uh, the, the, the local governments are creatures of the state. Uh, their powers are the powers that the state gives them by statute, uh, as, as, as you have pointed out. The same thing uh, is true of corporations. Corporations are creatures of the state. They have the powers and only the powers that the state gives to them. Uh, it, it seems to me, going back to Justice Stevens' initial question, that I don't see where the distinction lies uh, between the, in, in effect, the position of the local government units and, and corporations, uh, and, uh, and uh, between the, the, the local government units and, and the corporations. And, and it seems to me that that's a problem for you, quite apart from any application of federal law. I disagree, uh, Justice Souter. The, as I stated in response to Justice Stevens, the difference is a central one. That is to say, a corporation uh, is a private entity with, with uh, distinct rights under the First Amendment. Well, it, it has distinct rights under the First Amendment if state law ha- creates uh, a, a, a corporate form uh, of, of, uh, of, 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 of business organization. And uh, the, the, when, when it comes into existence, uh, it, it then does acquire uh, some rights under, under the National Constitution. But it's, it's in the first instance, it's a creature of state law. Its powers, uh, generally speaking, are the powers that state law gives it. And that, is, that same proposition is true of counties and towns uh, and, and, and other sub-state uh, governmental units. I disagree to the extent that uh, there's any attempt to equate a private corporation with essentially uh, uh, an agent or an arm of the state, uh, such as a county, which has been delegated governmental functions. All right. Then, then it seems to me that your argument is uh, not that state law controls what it may do and defines its powers. Your argument, it seems to me, has to rest upon the fact that what it is doing is a public as opposed to a private function. And, and that's the extent of the argument. Isn't that true? 
Well, that, that certainly is the, the, the distinction between a private corporation and, for example, a county. That's the only distinction that you can maintain. You can't maintain the distinction based upon uh, the superiority of state law uh, in defining the, uh, the extent of the governmental unit's powers and so on, because that is just as true of a corporation. So your distinction has simply got to be a distinction um, based on the nature of the function that is being performed. And the, and the very nature of the entity itself, Your Honor, uh, a, a county what, what, what do you mean by the nature of? A county or a school district performs functions assigned to it by the state legislature uh, to carry out function to carry out activities. Uh, that In other words, it's doing nature. it's doing a governmental job. That's correct. We, we understand what that is. So I understand that point. Your Honor, I, I can only uh, re repeat that the uh, distinction between the private corporation uh, and the uh, uh, and a, a political subdivision of the state is that, in fact, one is an entity created for the, by the legislature for the very purpose of carrying out state governmental function. Mm -hmm. that, that, I think, is entirely consistent with the position uh, argued uh, uh, throughout this case. No, but it, it, it is. But, I mean, when you say, as, as, as I think you are now saying, uh, the, the law uh, for the state should be the law for the subdivision because they are both governmental, the counterargument is, uh, in fact, uh, there are resemblances uh, to private uh, organizations, too. And, and those resemblances are, in effect, their creation and definition by state law, uh, their enjoyment of powers and only those powers which state law gives them, uh, so that in fact there is there is not only an analogy with the state government, there is an analogy with private corporations too. And the question is, why should we choose one analogy rather than the other analogy? And your honor, I, I think I've responded. But you don't think that under our federal system, the states have greater powers in deciding how they're going to organize themselves than they have with respect to the regulation of artificial private entities that they choose to permit under state law? Yes, they, of course, the state do have that authority. Uh, Council, we'll give you a minute for rebuttal since our questioning is taken away from your time. Mr. Collins? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case turns on three points. First, the statute at issue is a content-based restriction on speech, which is therefore presumptively invalid, requires heightened scrutiny, which petitioners acknowledge they cannot satisfy, unless one of the exceptions to heightened scrutiny is applicable here, those being exceptions which, as the Court has explained in RAV and Davenport, are limited to circumstances where there's no real risk of viewpoint suppression. Mr. Collins, suppose, um, uh, I gather Idaho doesn't have it, but suppose Idaho wanted a, uh, a Hatch Act similar to the Federal Hatch Act that, that prohibits Federal employees from uh, engaging in political activity. And suppose it decided uh, not only should uh, the State employees at the Capitol not engage in political activities, but it's a problem for any governmental employee to do that. They ought to be neutral, and we don't want uh, uh, 
uh, patronage to be passed out on the basis of whether they're campaigning for one party or another, and we don't want them to be coerced into campaigning for one party or another. Now, I assume that such a law would violate the First Amendment if it were extended to all employers, saying no, no company employee, no private employee can engage in political activity. Would surely violate the First Amendment. Would it violate the First Amendment if, if it was extended? Certainly, it doesn't when it's applied to state employees, because there are a lot of state hatch acts. And you're saying it would violate the First Amendment as applied to county and municipal employees? Uh, not at all, Your Honor. We, Why not? We, we don't take that position at all, because as the uh, Court has uh, indicated in letter carriers and Broderick and other cases, uh, there is a compelling interest in a, a statute which says that government employees, and it could be state or local, will not be performing well, their job. You're saying these are the, you're, saying, you're, you're analogizing these to private entities. That's your whole point. That's not. This right. is not a creature of the state. You're saying uh, what the first amendment, as the first amendment applies to private individuals, uh, so it applies here. This is regulation by the state rather than the state's control of state government. We are saying that, Your Honor, because the only defense that the state can possibly offer here to this content discrimination is the forum notion that the state has introduced. In the case well, of the Hatch Act, may, may it's I, not I a just, forum analysis. I just something at the outset. You have conceded below, and I thought I saw this in your brief as well, that as to the state of Idaho, its determination not to allow the deductibility is permissible. That's correct, Your Honor. All right. So we begin with the proposition that a state may do this if it chooses, i.e., this refuse on its own to have the payroll deduction. And the re yes, and the reason for that is that under Reagan and Finley and uh, Rust and the other cases, the state has perfect uh, freedom to decide not to devote its own resources to that expenditure. But interestingly, and very much on point and, here, and, and, and if and, and if a state had a system in which all payroll deductions were routine by local entities were routinely controlled by the state the states did all the payroll for the local entities then it then that in in that case the non-deductibility would also be permitted i take it yes your honor and let me explain because those are two very the answer to both questions is yes but for, for two very different reasons the answer to the second question is that our contention is not that the state is never a proprietor and never entitled to the kind of uh, deference that goes with a proprietor when it's dealing with local government programs. As the Court noted in the uh, Council of Greenberg case, a government can become a proprietor with respect to property or programs it doesn't actually own. Our point is quite simply that the State has not done that here. That's why, if the State had done it, if the State said we're going to dictate the, the nature of payroll deduction systems for local governments, the state could do that, and it would be well, then any doubt how they would? I mean, they passed a law dictating that with respect to everybody, and then it's pared down by litigation and concessions. So we don't have any real question of what the state's wanting to do here, is it? What I'm suggesting, Mr. Chief Justice, is that since we're beginning with a content-based restriction, I do want to emphasize it's a law here which says that for all employers, public, private, or state, 
The only expenditure you can't make through payroll deduction is for political activities. And also, the only resource of an employer that can't be used for any kind of political activities is payroll deduction. This being in a statute targeted at uh, employee support of union political activities. So we have a a content-based restriction. And the question is, can it come within an exception to the heightened scrutiny that petitioners acknowledge they can't satisfy? When I'm suggesting that the state could come within reduced scrutiny if it were actually managing the payroll systems, I'm referring to situations like Council of Greenberg, where the government, with respect to a particular kind of facility or program, says we don't own it, but we it's an integral part of a system that we are managing, establishing, not just saying, not just to say all we care about is there's one kind of speech we don't want to go on there. If the government says we have, we want to be the manager, the operator of a particular kind of local government operation, the state is free to do that. So if the state wants to, it, it, can, it can exercise a heavy hand in, and control its local units. But if it wants to give the local units uh, discretion, then it uh, has to leave it to the local unit whether or not they want to enact such a ban. That's your position. No, it's not a question of whether the state has the power to regulate. The question is, if the state regulation is in the form of a content-based restriction on speech, can it elude heightened scrutiny? And we are my, my question really is, if you look at this at the most basic level, we have two important concessions. You don't question the constitutionality of the ban as to state employees, um, and the other side doesn't question that it is unconstitutional as to private employees. So here we have state, uh, local employees. Do we bracket them with state employees or with private employees? That's essentially. Your Honor, functionally that's the question, but I think analytically we don't see it that way because the qu- the question is as we see it, is the state, with regard to this challenge statute in its application to the local governments, acting in a capacity that entitles it to be free from the normal First Amendment scrutiny that it acknowledges it would fail. And that's where our point is. The reason it is free from that scrutiny as to its own employees is because of the cases that say the government doesn't have to spend its money. It's at that part, just where you are, that I've always had a hard time, not for lack of trying. I don't understand what the word content-based means. And, and I, I know it's all over the law, but I've never understood it. And maybe since you're relying on it 15 times, you can explain it. And the thing I don't understand about it is, it seems to me, government engages in thousands of different kinds of activity. And there isn't some special test when they say that in the jury room, the jury room is there for juries. It's not to show movies uh, of Steven Spielberg. And there isn't some special test. Uh, when you say the purpose of the biology class is to teach biology, uh, and we don't want people coming in here uh, teaching some other thing. I I don't understand what this special test called content-based is. And uh, that's a rather deep misunderstanding on my part. But since you're depending on it, why don't you take 30 seconds or 45 seconds to see if you can help me? Well, Justice Breyer, the, the, the concept of content dis, uh, discrimination may 
blur on some edges, but one thing that the Court has been clear on is that when a government says speech, one form of speech will not be allowed and that will be political speech, that is treated as requiring heightened scrutiny. And I should say both. Yes, and for example, in biology classes, the school board says, you know, biology teacher, I want you to teach biology. I don't want you to teach politics. And then there's some special scrutiny about how the, how the biology teacher is to teach or, or what they say, just they say, the jury room is for juries. It's not for politics. Well, th- those all that is subject to some special First Amendment test? Well, first of all, uh, Your Honor, all of those would pass muster either because — They might. Except, they might. No, e- you know, a lot of them, you know, you could show movies in jury rooms in the evening, and people might find it much better. No, they would pass muster — Either because they're within exceptions to heightened scrutiny, because not all content distinctions require heightened scrutiny, or they would pass muster even under heightened scrutiny. But one kind of content dis- distinction that the Court consistently has indicated requires heightened scrutiny is in Davenport, well, in Burson, a majority of the Court at least, you can you talk about anything you want near the polling place, but not politics. That was content. Consolidated Edison, you can talk about anything in your billing envelopes, but not controversial issues. Davenport, very recently, union from fees that individuals are required to pay to you, and in this case we're not talking about any compelled fees, but with compelled fees you can use them for anything you want, but not politics. Since uh, we're in confessional mode, I've never understood uh, forum analysis. I don't understand how... How you can say that this payroll deduction system is some kind of a forum? A forum is, you know, the corner at Hyde Park or something. This is this is something that governmental entities and private entities do, and they can either exclude this type of activity or they can't. But and and the problem with the forum analysis is it's all or nothing. I mean, and I both parties seem to agree. If it's a state forum, you, you can do it. If it's a private forum. Uh, or if it's an open forum, uh, you can't. That, that's not how we usually analyze these things. Well, two points in response to that, Mr. Chief Justice. First, we are not the ones who say that this must be looked at under forum analysis. We'd be quite happy, and I think the, the most sensible way actually to approach the case is simply that, that this is a content distinction, and it's presumptively invalid, and, there, and there's no sufficient justification. The other side says, wait a minute, there is a line of cases that says that when there's a forum involved of the government and the government is restricting speech in that forum, there can be an exception to heightened scrutiny. And Davenport — You say there is a sufficient — presumably, you you can see there is a sufficient justification for this content-based restriction as to state employees. What we say as to state employees, uh, Justice Alito, is that it falls under the uh, Reagan-Finley line of cases, that you don't even get to — a First Amendment scrutiny because it's under the doctrine that when the government says we won't spend our money on something, that's not an impingement of speech in the first place. And interestingly, the, the so if there's state money involved in these payroll systems, that would be sufficient. If the state said you can't use our money for payroll deductions of this kind, then it would arguably be into that category. But I think what's important to but, recognize uh, isn't there isn't there some state tax money? that goes to fund the local units? I mean, you, you say here the state taxpayers' funds involved, therefore the state doesn't have to pay for what it doesn't want to fund. But aren't there state funds that fund local 
government there, there is state funding, but the reason, I believe, why the respondents, excuse me, the petitioners, have conceded that the subsidization case law does not apply to this statute in its application to the local governments is that what the subsidization cases are talking about, uh, cases like Reagan, Russ, Finley, are situations where, we'll say, the state is involved in developing a program which it will pay for, and it says because we're paying for that, our priorities are to be honored. The government, in this instance, it's been uh, conceded, as the Court of Appeals pointed out, there's no actual subsidization of the payroll systems. In effect, the state says we have some money we give to our local governments. Uh, it's by no means all their money, but they get some money. But we, the state does not set the kinds of budget priorities that are protected by the Reagan line of cases. The, the, the state, in effect, says as far as payroll systems and, in fact, as far as most employment matters and most administrative matters are concerned, here's some money for you, local government. The only thing we say about it is don't use it for political Uh, payroll. No, but another way of looking at it is to say that in each of these instances, whether we're talking about the state taxing uh, in in order to perform functions at the state level or whether the state is authorizing taxations for functions to be formed at the local level, in, in all of these instances, uh, the state is in the position to say, not that it is sort of our money, but to say it is public money. Uh, and our decision is that public money will not be used uh, to, uh, by a public entity uh, to underwrite political activity. And why isn't the state uh, in, in exactly the same position uh, in making that judgment, whether it's talking about money that goes directly into the state coffer or public tax money that happens to be going into a, a town coffer? Because, Your Honor, I, I think the courts never applied the Reagan subsidization analysis in that kind of But I'm, I'm asking you why shouldn't, well, it should not. why shouldn't we, on the theory that what is important is not which particular coffer the penny goes into, but the fact that it is public money, i.e. money being raised from taxpayers, under a statute passed by the state authorizing taxation, and it is going to, and its justification for taxation uh, is the performance of public functions. And if the state can say it is not a proper public function when the money is being filtered through our particular treasury, why isn't it equally valid for the state legislature to say that when the money is being filtered through a local treasury? I th- for the following reason, I think, uh, Justice Souter, that the doctrine that says that when a government is refusing to subsidize something, there's no violation in the, in the first place of the First Amendment, and therefore, except in the rarest, rarest of cases, legal services cases, the rarest of cases, there can be no First Amendment claim. That's very powerful medicine, and it turns on the notion that somewhat alike but different from, in detail, this propri- the proprietor concept, but, but it, it turns on the notion that the government is making judgments about how its money is going to be used. It decides what it wants its money to be used for, and we are going to honor that. Yeah, but what, what you're saying is, I, I, you're, you're saying, in effect, that, uh, that, I, that, that you reject uh, my, my hypothetical assumption here that what we ought to regard as the proper characterization of the money is not our state money, but public money raised under a system of public taxation. 
and you're saying you should not go, you should not characterize the funds that way. And, no, of course, that's your position. No, I you do characterize the funds that way. It seems to me you're in trouble. No, the, why shouldn't I characterize them that way? No, even, characteri- even characterizing it that way, the reason that I think the analysis breaks down as to applying subsidization law is that the, the subsidization law doctrine, the subsidization doctrine, uh, Reagan in those cases, uh, as the Court has explained it, is to, is to protect the prerogatives of a government that is making decisions about how it wants particular programs to be operated. The, the, the State Legislature is making a decision as to how it wants the, the programs which comprise local government to be operated. But the difference, Your Honor, in all of the other cases one could look at, Reagan and the like, there's a program where the government is involved in its manifold uh, details. The government determines the purpose of the program. It has a, an overriding interest in the program, and it says, in the course of that, in the course of dealing with this program, we don't want government money to be used for the following things. If, you, if that were extended to say that there will be essentially no First Amendment claim, whenever the government says, uh, as to some program, that it has no other involvement in, that has no other interest in, uh, we don't want the following speech. And over here, we don't well, want they, the following speech. Well, but the, the point in, in the case that you concede the government may, may make that choice is that the government is subsidizing it by the activity which the government is refusing to perform. So it's not merely a case of saying there shall be this kind of speech and not that kind of speech. In each instance, there is a decision being made, in my hypothetical, that the government will not subsidize that kind of activity, that kind of speech, uh, by using public money. But the difference for First Amendment analysis, I would submit, Your Honor, and the reason why I think the, the subsidization doctrine has been confined in the areas it's been confined is when we're talking in this case, for example, about the state, the state determines whether it's going to have a payroll deduction system. It determines whether it's going to allow deductions for charity, charities, whether it's going to allow uh, deductions for this, that, and the other. It determines who, who's going to administer the program, how expensive it's going to be, all of those things. Its money is going into that program, and it is, as to that program, making all of these decisions about how its money is going to be spent. That is a, and in the course of that, it says we don't want this one, this element as part of it. Just as we we do want charitable, we don't want political. Maybe we do, don't want charitable either. It is a different situation in terms of basic First Amendment analysis, I believe. If you have a government saying we don't care anything Mr. about Jones, local government pay- payroll systems, may, may even I though they get our you and ask you the converse of the question I asked your opponent. Uh, he conceded that there's, it was unconstitutional, sort of what do you call it, content discrimination or whatever, to have the deduction in the private sector, but the counties were different. And he justified the counties on the ground that had the state's interest in avoiding taking a position with regard to union matters justified. But that's the only justification for the — it's not the administrative justification. This statute wasn't enacted to save the — the government administrative expenses, the purpose of the statute is perfectly clear. And I'm surprised that you concede that it's constitutional as applied to the state government when there's no evidence whatsoever that it serves the purpose that everybody's talking about. Your Honor, we've conceded that reluctantly under the view that 
where the question is whether the state our, — our claim against the state would say we, we are going to require the state to start devoting money that it doesn't want to spend. As we, we have chosen, given the force of cases like Reagan, not to make that contention, to, to accept the ruling that the state's refusal to spend money on its own programs is in a different category. But this is not a case involving a state's decision not to, take, not to spend the time and energy to do payroll deductions because they do them for everybody else. It's simply based on the reason for the, for the payroll deduction, which is, in your view, an impermissible reason. Is that not correct? Uh, that's uh, correct, Your Honor. And if it were clear uh, that uh, as to what kinds of reasons are considered impermissible under How could it be more clear they enacted a general statute that had the same justification throughout the state, and now you justify it on a ground that doesn't apply to all their other government activities because they allow payroll deductions. Mm-hmm. Well, in Davenport, Your Honor, the Court did indicate that uh, a statute that applies to public to, uh, and private, even though it's a unitary statute, you have to analyze it separately in the two uh, context. But our, our point, though, I think the point that, that is being lost, we don't see this as a question about what can the state do with respect to its own operations as such and what can it do with respect to local government operations. We see it as a case that asks the question whether a content distinction directed at certain kinds of political activities that would normally require heightened scrutiny gets a pass from that scrutiny because it's in a, quote, forum. And we, our position is quite simply that if the state were, in fact, managing these local government payroll systems, which it would have a perfect right to do, that then it could avail itself of that analysis. But because it doesn't, uh, it cannot. And so you're just payroll. Suppose the state, at the state level, says this is a contentious area. We want to stay out. We're going to be neutral. We're simply not allowing payroll deduction for uh, right-to-work causes, for, for, for union causes. We, we don't want that. Uh, if the state can say that, and in your concession indicates to me that it can, uh, then why can't it tell its subdivisions, you have to be efficient? We don't want arguments from one city to the next city about payroll deduction. It's going to consume the time of the city council's uh, the, the time of the citizens, we want to take this off the table for you, just the way we've taken it off the table for us. Because uh, I think the, the difference, Your Honor, as I understand the case law, is that when the state is simply saying, we choose not to spend our own money on this activity, it does not have the same burden of explaining why it's made that choice that it has when it reaches out and says, and by the way, we don't want local governments or even private Well, of course, that's the issue. There's a very strong federal interest in allowing the states to organize their governmental systems the way they choose. Just uh, our, our gun control registration case, where we said that the federal government cannot tell the counties uh, that it has certain duties for gun control registration. And we have no quarrel at all with that notion. Our position in, in no way dictates, no, in no way has the First Amendment dictating how a state must structure its government. It simply says, look, we begin with the proposition that normally this restriction on political speech would be subject to heightened scrutiny. I'm not sure that's right. I'm not sure the state isn't saying we want to determine how our government is structured in this respect. The, if, the, if the state wants to have a uniform law 
for itself, for public employer employees, its own employees and uh, local government employees, uh, because of some unitary interest that the state wants to pursue. There's nothing wrong with the state pursuing that objective, but when it does it through restricting political speech, it has to either satisfy heightened scrutiny or come within one of the exceptions. And the, di the distinction, maybe I can put it this way, uh, Justice Kennedy, the, the reason why for First Amendment scrutiny analysis there is a sharp distinction be in this case between what the state's treatment of its own employees and the state treatment of, other, of local governments is, uh, I think it's basically threefold. First, when the state says we don't choose to allow certain speech in our own form, it is simply declining to facilitate speech that couldn't take place without an affirmative grant. When it says to local governments who in the state of nature can allow whatever uh, they want in the way of speech, when it says that there we will not allow these kinds of deductions, it's blocking speech that would take place but for the government's intervention. And well, so I'll, I'll, read Rousseau, I'll read Rousseau again, but I didn't think that Pocatello, Idaho, was part of the state of nature. <laughs> and uh, so I just meant that no, no it's, it's this simple, uh, Justice Kennedy, and I, the point I'm trying to make is that f for someone to get access to, political, to payroll deduction system of the state government, it needs an affirmative grant from the state. To have access to the use of, of payroll deduction from local governments, it doesn't need an affirmative grant from the state. It simply needs the state not to interfere and reject the, the local government. So it's a, it's a different kind of action, but equally important, the basis for the kind of relaxed scrutiny that the, that the petitioners have argued for, the forum cases like Cornelius, et cetera, those are all situations where a government that is that has established and managed a, a facility is determining on a day-to-day -day basis what's the purpose of our program, what are we going to allow. Could you help me with it? Would you, would you object if we uh, analyze this as an unconstitutional condition case? I don't know that you prevail or not, but it, 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 uh, the, the form analysis doesn't seem to me to quite fit. Um, it's fine with me that as if you analyze it in any way that says that heightened scrutiny is applicable and there's no exception. Why? The problem with unconstitutional condition, uh, if it's a, if it were a condition on the, on the local governments, then it's not really within the unconstitutional Are you, are you saying, is, is it your view that heightened scrutiny applies whenever a government tells any group that wants to raise money for political purposes in any way they want involving the government that it can't? Uh, no, Your Honor. No. I, okay. I, I, I thought the answer would be no. Then, will you try to say in a sentence or two, if the answer is it heightened scrutiny doesn't apply to any kind of an effort to raise money for political purposes, where they say to the government, you've got to help me, when does it apply and when doesn't? The, well, there, there are exceptions to heightened scrutiny where the government is acting as a proprietor. There are exceptions to heightened scrutiny where the government But then you're making say it always applies except in a few little exceptions. Well, I, I know there's one for government speech and so forth. But you're saying whenever the government tells a person you can't, uh, for example, go to the city hall and raise money, you can't do it in the jury room, you can't raise money here, you can't raise money there, da 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 da, da uh, or you can't speak here, you can't. It's always heightened scrutiny. Well, 
if the government is allowing other speech, it would be heightened scrutiny, but it would pay. You cannot. You have to use heightened scrutiny when the FDA, for example, you know, the case I wrote in, uh, the FDA says you cannot advertise uh, um, uh, on a label uh, 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 for a drug. We don't want advertising. We don't want advertising on the label. That's heightened scrutiny. If it's it's commercial speech, uh, it might fall under a a different standard. It would easily pass it, is the point. I mean, there's no question that a lot of situations easily pass heightened scrutiny, and a lot of circumstances uh, are an exception. And the problem in this case is that the petitioner's sole submission — And regulation of government employees is the same. it, it basically would trigger the, the uh, heightened scrutiny, uh, except where the government is involved. When the government is involved in managing employees, in, just as when it's managing a forum, there, there could be a different analysis. But the, the problem where the shoe doesn't fit that petitioners are trying to put on this case is that petitioners concede everything there is to concede about this case and then say, but it's just like Cornelius. And it's just the government deciding what to do with its own programs. And our point is quite simply that unlike every case where the court has applied relaxed scrutiny in a proprietary situation, this is a case where the government does not play any role with respect to these well, programs other than you, to limit the Why speech. are you focusing on heightened scrutiny? We have a whole series of cases about employee speech, Garcetti and Pickering, where it's quite different than, than heightened scrutiny. And here we're talking about the employees being able to deduct uh, check off from their, their paycheck for political speech. If I may answer that question, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, um, it's, it's, it's correct that uh, where a law is based on employee behavior, that other kinds of scrutiny can be involved. Garcetti is obviously if it's uh, speech in your capacity of doing your job. But the Hatch Act cases, letter carriers, use the Pickering uh, balance. That's not a mere reasonableness test by a long shot. That's a comparison, as in the NT, uh, National Treasury Employees Honoraria case, same situation, uh, a balancing test between the harm that's perceived from allowing the speech uh, and the uh, benefits of the speech to the individual. So there, there can be that separate analysis, which, if it were applied here, uh, the state would also fail. The state says it only prevails under a reasonableness test, and none of those are mere reasonableness ana- uh, analyses. But Thank you, Counselor. Uh, Mr. Smith, you have one minute. Two points. Uh, uh that I think uh, are critical. First, the concession with respect to the state government employees based on Reagan uh, in itself entails a concession as to the reasonableness uh, and the viewpoint neutrality of the statute. Two, uh, respondents' um, uh, theory of government with respect to uh, uh, the legislature having to speak in some kind of specific terms, um, we would suggest ignores uh, or ask this Court to uh, uh, create entirely new case law. But it also ignores in this, in this situation the fact that the Idaho legislature uh, contributes uh, in 2006-2007 about half of the funds used by school districts in the state, and over 80 percent of those funds that go into what's known as the General Maintenance and Operation Fund 
from which salary compensation is paid. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.